We're reading this morning from Genesis chapter 2. It won't be up on the screen. Um, and Genesis chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And this is, a, this is a fantastic section of Scripture. All of it's fantastic, right? It's all God-breathed and useful. But this is, this is very... We start to get into some very poignant uh, uh, topics, I guess I would say, about mankind and about sin and about where we're at. Uh, but I'll read this morning and just, just kind of listen as I, as I go. The Lord God took the man, Genesis 2.15, he took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for, for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman, a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, moving forward to chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the fruit, uh, eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Wow. Again, we can, we can jump, jump way up to the, the end of this and go, okay, that's what this is all about. These guys really blow it, but let's, let's slow down for a second here and talk about what we're reading. We're talking about God's history lesson on everything. God going back to the beginning and, and detailing history for everyone to understand how everything came to be. And what I've said over the past couple of weeks is so important is we take God at his word. We take God at his word and how he wrote it to us because we live in a world that is certainly moved beyond the idea that God's word is literal, that God's word is infallible, that God's word is true. We live in a world that doesn't believe that that's the case. We live in a world that doesn't believe that the God of Scripture is who he says he is, if if he exists at all. And the sad thing, as I documented last week and talked about, the sad thing is we live in a church culture now that greater than half of the Western church believes the same thing. Maybe not the same thing about God, but they certainly believe that about his word, that his word is not exactly the truth. That it's not made to be taken perfectly literal. There's parts of scripture that really we don't even need for life today. And there's some things that are so contextual that they don't apply to us. And so we're just not going to hold fast to the message of God's word. But we like the ideas. We like the cloud that's above it. We like the idea of good versus evil. And we we like the idea of being on on the good team. But holding to all of this, I'm not sure that I can. That's the church culture in which we live. 
a church that says, I'm not so sure about that. And I talk about it all the time because it's important for us to talk about the fact that the church in the Western world is shrinking. Okay. We're not growing. We're not, people aren't beating the doors down of of most churches to, to find Jesus and be saved. The church is shrinking. The pockets of the Western church that are growing. There are some. The pockets of the Western church that are expanding are the church that is touting this truth and this half truth, this message. Hey, it's not all for us. It's not all for today. There is good in there and there is bad in there. Don't worry about this. Don't look at that. Just focus on this. That's the, that's the church in the Western world that is expanding. That's scary. That's the church in our culture that is growing right now. A church that, that has come halfway in on the message and is, and is making up their, their, their mind about the other parts that they're not looking at. It's like a guy, you know, you, you sit down and watch a movie and you're, you're an hour into it, an hour and 15 minutes into the movie. And you got, you got the plot, you got the characters, it's developed, it's happening, you know, you're engaged. And then the dude comes and joins you right in the middle and is going, what I miss? What, what, who is that? Why is that girl crying? Why are they all whispering right now? Well, you know, he's trying to catch up and you're like, hey, stop, stop. You, I, I'm trying to enjoy the movie, right? I already know the whole, the whole stage has been set and I'm in for, for, the, for the whole show, but I'm not going to sit here and recount all this stuff that has happened for you. Just enjoy the ending. Presto, you got, you've got a modern Western convert to Christianity. He's come in halfway through the story and he's being told, don't worry about what happened before. You don't need to know all that. All you need to know is the ending is good. That person has no foundation. That person d- does not know where he came from, what this whole thing is about. He's told to look forward to the end. He's told from this point forward, everything is going to be good, but he has no foundation. And as we looked in the book of Genesis, if that was Moses, if Moses was this guy, and God doesn't stop everything and take him back to the beginning, Moses would have a faulty foundation, a crumbling foundation, and he would not be fit to lead anybody. So God takes him back. He takes him back and teaches all of this. Because why? He would not know why he needs to worship this God like he does. This God that he he met at the burning bush. He would not understand why he would be so worthy of worship. He would not have a holy fear of this God that Barah, that made everything with his voice out of nothing, created everything from nothing. He would not have a holy fear of a God who could do that and then in a moment step down and talk to him like a man, one-on-one and love him and be interested in him. He would not be captivated by this God so much. If he didn't have all of this understanding and he wouldn't understand the complete depravity of mankind, not understanding why everybody was doomed through what we just read from from the, the sin of Adam, why everyone was doomed. And he wouldn't understand how God had a singular plan of restoration. How God had a singular plan of redemption, how God was going to use one people. And one man through Abraham and through Abraham's offspring, one man, Jesus Christ, to save everything. He would not have known all of that. What Moses would have done coming halfway through the story, knowing there's a good ending down the road, is he would have pieced together 
an idea of how all this came to be, an idea. And when we do that, here's the deal, guys. When we do that, what Moses would have done, what you and I would do, is we would, do, we would come up with an idea and a belief system of what we prefer, of what we're comfortable with, right? That's what we, that's what we do as, as believers. So if you pick up Moses' story from the burning bush forward and you say that's his experience and this is who he is and God doesn't take him back and teach him everything, Moses is going to say, here's how you know God. You go to this bush and it catches on fire. And doesn't burn up. And God speaks to you through the bush. Not only that, you go up on this mountain and he speaks to you right there and it shakes and it thunders and he carves messages in rocks for you. Moses doesn't know how God has dealt with man for the 3,000 years prior. God had to go teach him. God had to go show him. See, this Moses that has an incomplete picture would either say that or he would say, look, this is how God, this is how I have found God. I found God at this burning bush and I found God on this mountain. But for me to tell you how to find God, that's not my business. I've found God the way that I have. You find God the way that you're going to find God. You see, this Moses would not be fit to lead people. And this Moses would not be written into the story of the Christ. God's plan of salvation for every man, woman, and child who ever lived if he didn't get a foundation. So God takes him back and he takes us back. And that's when we read the scripture like we read this morning. Don't just rush ahead and go, well, these guys blew it. This is a story about sin. Everything that God spoke to Moses was so important for us. Every facet of the story is captivating and interesting. And God breathed. So that we would know what in the world we're here for. So if we just jump ahead and say, yeah, this is about sin, man, they all blew. No, no, no. Let's step back. Let's step back in, into the story and understand what, what God is saying to us and how he's saying it to us. And this section of scripture, if there's any section of scripture that, that today, and I mean, again, when we talk about creation, you know, you get enough, you get enough blowback right now, right? You get enough blowback. If you say that I, I'm a, I'm a literal young earth, six day creationist. I believe that God barad. I believe he, he spoke it all into existence. He didn't have to use an evolutionary process. He didn't have to use a big bang. He is the big bang. He is God. And he did it. And you can say that in church circles and, and get a little blowback. And you can say that out there and they go, yeah, you're kind of crazy. We don't think that happened. But when you go into this section of scripture, You're going to have a fight on your hands. Why? Because God defines gender here. He defines man and woman. And it's beautiful. And it's perfect. And again, if there's anything that the world is telling us we need to throw away right now, it's what the God of the Bible has spoken to us in his word about man and woman. And there's so much here. And I don't want to get in and muddy the waters and and pick sides and do all kinds of stuff. We've got, we got as much time as Jesus will give us to go through the book of Genesis, but I'm going to start somewhere. I'm going to start with biblical manhood. What does it mean to be a man according to God's word? I can tell you this. It is not male genitalia. The world is full of men who are males, who are boys. The church is full 
of boys because we've never walked in the uniqueness that God has called us to from the beginning as men. And this is so important to grab a hold of it. And the ladies that are in here, don't feel cheated. Don't feel cheated about us. You'll get your chance. But for the men that are in your life, it's to know what to expect of them. Not to beat them over the head with it when they, when they don't achieve it. Know what to expect of a biblical man. Know how to bless him and pray for him. That he would be that. Understand that this is a godly role. God has ordained for the men in your life to walk in and live in it. Be it your husband. Be it your son. Be it your brother. This is huge for us. When we're introduced to the man in scripture here, Genesis chapter 2. Don't get weirded out on me here, but when we're introduced to man in Genesis chapter 2, he is male and female. Understand that when Jesus, when, when Jesus speaks, he's the word from the beginning, right? He speaks this forth. Let us make man in our image, male and female. And then you see man. And again, not, not, not to get weirded out here, but, but man was complete in Adam. He was complete. He had both, both masculine and feminine qualities in himself. God made him perfect. Now, listen, when you, get, when, when you step forward to Genesis 2.18, you realize that God's saying, hey, it's not fit for man to be alone. God didn't go, man, I messed up when I made him complete. I should have made him separate. I should have separated these things out because now he needs a helper. No, no. God waits until man understands that he needs a helper. He, he, he sees it's not fit for man to be alone now. He gets it. He's looking for something. And you let's step back again. Now, Steve, if man was complete, if both male and female, he was complete. God made, it, made him masculine and feminine. All of it was there. Then why, was, why would man recognize that he needed something else? Here's why. Because the masculine dominates the feminine. And when I say that, I'm just, just by the nature, our characteristics the masculine qualities of, of mankind dominate, overpower the feminine qualities. And you don't have to go very far back to look at that. I mean, kids, boys want to scream and yell. They want to crash. They want to they smash things. Girls like to take care of things. It's natural. And again, don't get offended if you say, well, this isn't how I'm trying. No, no, no. Just understand that this is the truth. You know, girls want to talk things over. Guys want to yell and shout and cheer and, and, you know, bump chest and things like that. I want to go to Buena Braza, Matt. I want to go to Buena Braza. I want to eat salted charred meats. I want to keep my card on green for an hour and a half. Dan, you've been there. I want an hour and a half. I want you to bring me meats and don't stop. And Danielle would much rather have afternoon tea. Male and female. You see, when God created man complete with both masculine and feminine qualities, something was going to naturally happen. And that is those masculine qualities and those masculine characteristics were going to shout out, shout down and drown out the feminine qualities. And so God does something amazing and beautiful and perfect. And he puts man to sleep. And you've heard the joke, you know, he never wakes him up, right? God puts man to sleep and he takes from him, says a rib. He takes flesh from man. But what God is doing in that moment is he's taking these feminine qualities, the feminine characteristics of mankind, and he's pulling them out of this male, masculine-dominated man. And he's forming something beautiful. 
and perfect and lovely with them. Why? So that even in man's beating his chest, jumping up and down, masculine self, he would stop and say, I need that. I need that. I want that. I can't live without it. That's why God does this. And the, the, beautiful, the, beauty, the beauty of this is when you read scripture and understand that this is the, uh, God's idea of marriage. And I'm not even talking about this today. But God's idea of marriage is that when God pulled this out of man and presented it to him as something beautiful and lovely, God then presented it back to man, man and woman, and you have completeness again. Again, not to get into what the world's idea of marriage or whatever is, but from a sensical standpoint, you go, this is awesome, what God has done. Because now, now you have the masculine qualities that were right up there on the surface, drowning out the feminine. But now the feminine qualities have been brought out and brought to the surface as something lovely and beautiful and are presented back to man so that both the masculine and the feminine qualities of mankind can operate in unity, can sync up together and can be one. God uses that. And that's awesome. That's why God does what he does there. So when you look at this man, when the man first shows up again, you say, well, he's both male, female, whatever. He's man. The, f- the feminine qualities are drowned out. He, he is, he is a man's man. He's naming everything in the world. Right. God says, go ahead. He's like, yeah, I'm going to call that hippopotamus. You know, I don't know how long it took Adam to do this, but you know, he was probably having fun with it. Some of these names, again, we have our own take on them, but some of these names were pretty outrageous, but it was a big job. But see, Adam was out in the wilderness. Adam was out and about. He was, he was in, in the, out with the creatures in the, in the jungle and whatever. And then God takes man and he places him in the garden. He places him in paradise. And Danielle and I have this, this constant joke going on. You know, man was, man was created outside of paradise, right? He was made out in the wilderness. He was made out in the rugged. He was made to survive. And God took him out of that environment And he placed him in the lush garden. He placed him in this paradise. And so there's a reason why, why men, men want to get out there and and fish trout, Dan. There's a reason why, why, why Matt, there's a reason why we want to go hunt. There's a reason why it's, there's a reason why I love people that both fish and hunt, even though I don't do much of either because I like to eat. But there's a reason why men are driven this way. And then there's a reason why women like to nest. Women naturally like the comfort. I don't know how many of you have throw pillows and things on your couch and on your bed that you're not allowed to use. There's, this makes absolutely no sense to a man. There are, there are pieces of furniture and there are rooms in some houses you can't even use. <laughs> because she has created home. This is, she was made there. God takes man, he places him in there, and then she is made there. That's home for her, this comfort. And so it's interesting, again, this running joke we have about, about paradise. But when God takes man and he places him in paradise, he places him in his home. When God sets man in his home, he gives him charge over it. And he tells him to work it and take care of it. Now, that's the NIV. The NIV says to work it and take care of it. The King James here says to dress and to keep it. 
Now, when I, if I were to read that, the King James, and I'm going to go, okay, God wants me to dress and keep my house, my home? I don't understand. Let's go to the, let's go to the Hebrew here, because this is, this is beautiful and it's perfect. The Hebrew here, the words to dress is abad, and the word to keep is shamar. Now, abad, abad can be understood, it can be translated as work like we do in the NIV. But only seven times in Scripture is it used in that context. 290 times it's used in Scripture. Only seven times is it, does it mean to work or to labor. 243 of those times, including this one, it means to serve, to service, to attend to. To serve, to service, to attend to the home. And this word shamar, it means to keep. But when shamar is used in scripture, it is, it is used in application to a watchman, to a guard. Someone who would be in, in, in the tower watching for an enemy, making sure that his city was safe. So it's not just keep, you know, not, man, it's not our, our, it is our job to keep the house tidy. But that's not what God is saying here. He's saying to watch over the home. Again, those are, those are very powerful verbs in and of themselves when you think about what God is saying there in the, in the original language. But it gets even more powerful when you step into the Levitical law. Because God uses those same two words to describe the role of the Levite as he takes care of as he dresses, as he keeps watch over God's people in the tabernacle. See, before, before you, I mean, if you start from, 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 from Matthew forward, or if you start from, from Proverbs forward, or you start in Ecclesiastes forward, you can say, you know what? My role as a man, my role as a godly man is to work hard and provide for my family is to make sure they have a roof over their head and that they are protected and they have all that they need. We have food, we have shelter, we have clothing. I've done my job. If there's any misunderstanding of what it means to be a biblical man, it's hanging your hat on that and said, I've done it. Now it is biblical to do what I just said. I mean, it is undeniable when you look in scripture, if a man does not work, he does not eat. The sluggard is rebuked a million times in the, in the book of Proverbs. And you get into a Ecclesiastes and you understand that it's a gift of God for man to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. And you step into the books of, you know, that Paul writes to Timothy, he's telling him, instruct the men to work. This is proper and it is good. And again, you come halfway in on the story and that is great and that is biblical and it is true. But if you step back into the second verse, the second chapter of the book of God, the Bible, the first thing God commands of man is to be a priest in his home. To be the priest of his home. To dress, to keep, to serve, to watch over. So what does that look like? Well, let's think of a Levite. A Levite served there in the tabernacle before God every day, sacrificing and praying and worshiping. Why? Well, he was a Levite, Steve. It was his job. He was doing it not for himself. 
He was doing it for his people. The Levite was there day and night and day and night in shifts so that all the sacrifice could be taken care of, so that prayers were offered on behalf of the saints, all of it for his people. In his own time, the Levite would take care of himself, but this was his service to God's people. Men, your service is to your family. Your time before the throne, your time before God is about lifting up, praying for, encouraging your family, your women, your children, everyone in your life. That is your role as a priest is to be there before the throne on their behalf. And again, I know our lives are full of all kinds of stuff. And I spend plenty of time before the throne of God, God talking about me and what I need. And man, how bad this is. And man, I, my job is really killing me today. And all this, our job as priests is to be there for them. God's got us. Our job is to be there for them. And when, and when our women and when our children are going through the struggles of life, ours is not to say, just get over it. Ours is not to go, look, it's really not that big a deal. Mine is to go with her before God. And plead on her behalf. To go with her before, before God. To go ahead of her to God. And say, God, my wife, she needs you. God, my daughter, she needs you. My son, he needs you. God, this is my job as priest to go before you and plead their case. We have a right to be there through the blood of Jesus. And that's powerful and that's awesome. Not only do we, this is the Abad, not only is it, is it our, ours to serve them in this way, but men, a biblical man leads his home spiritually, not just serving them before God, but the, a biblical man sets the pace for spiritual growth in the home. And when that gets out of whack, things get out of whack. Our job is to, now listen, your job is not to wash your wife with the word of God, not to tell her what she needs to do in the word, not to tell her how much she needs to read and how much she needs to pray and how much she needs to study. But yours is to set the attitude and the pace, the anticipation of what God can do. Yours is to, is to make sure she understands that you are pursuing God with your life and to stay ahead so that she can come along with you, beside you. But not allowing her to be the one that's the front runner. That's not her job. You're the priest. It's your job to set this pace. And not only with her, again, not to say this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. But just simply run ahead and chase God. But it is your job to instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. And this goes to women too. But, but as a man, as the leader of the home, it is, your, it is, it is a God-given responsibility. You know what the only description of, of children's church in scripture is? It's in the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy chapter six. God says, God says, write these things on your heart. He's telling men, write these things on your heart. And now impress them upon your children. When you go out and when you come in. When you're out on the road, talk about them. When you're, when you're going through life, instruct your kids in these things. When you come in and out of your house, write them on the, the doorposts and the lentils of your home. That's, that's the only description I have in, in, in the Bible of children's church. 
And not to speak anything about, about children's pastors or children's ministries because they do great things. They teach kids so much. But what is happening in our culture is that men have dropped the ball of instructing their own children in the ways of the Lord. And they're saying, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my big service. You go in there. Man, I hope you get something. Hope the coloring works. I hope whatever. And you've got these kids who are detached from their parents. Their parents are going to worship God in their own way. And their kids are, are in here worshiping God in, in their own little setting with the fun and the games and whatever. And then you get a, a 13, a 14, a 15-year-old. Now he's going off to youth group. And his parents, his parents have never taken him or her and said, this is the word of God. This is how we do it. And again, I, I can speak to the women, but this is about men this morning. It's about, it's about being a man biblically, part of your abad, part of the job that we have. The priestly duty of a man is to instruct his children in the ways of the Lord. And that means, men, you got, you got to pick up your game. If that intimidates you, you got to pick up your game. You have to get in it yourself. You have to understand it yourself in order to instruct your children. This is God's word. And we can, we can skirt it. And we can say, well, there's better ways of doing this now. No, there's not a better way. God's word is the better way. And this is our responsibility. That's the abad that we have. Now, how about the shamar? How about this, this, keeping, this keeping watch over your home spiritually? As I said, this, this has to do with a, a watchman, like in a tower guarding a city. You know, the, the home, the home is, is your city. The home is, is, is what you're guarding. And as, as watchmen, we are to be ever alert for what? The enemy. Listen, men, the devil hates your women. He hates them. Men, the devil, the devil hates your children. He'll do whatever it takes to disrupt, to destroy, to distract, to, to fill their heads full of lies and all sorts of stuff. He will do whatever. The, the enemy is prowling around like a lion, Peter says, looking for someone to devour. And you can puff your chest out and say, not me, man, not me. But let me tell you, he's coming for your women and he's coming for your children. He's not a dummy. Watch, watch lions hunt. They find, they find the less strong. They run around and they, they scatter. And those that, that kind of get out here, that's who they, they go after. He's not a dummy. Our responsibility is to be a watchman, head on a swivel, looking for the attacks. I mean, how often are we, are, things are happening to, in our home. Things are happening to our wives and to our kids. And we're just like, man, gosh, this just stinks right be alert, Peter says. Be watchful. See, as men, our, our, just our makeup, our, our physiology and who we are is we're supposed to be offensive, not offending, but offensive. We are supposed to be warriors. We are supposed to be going out, you know, and looking for something. We, we want to kill and hunt and eat, and that's, that's who we are. And to sit back and to allow things to come into your home. To allow the enemy to influence in negative ways. This is our job as priests to stand firm. I take a lot of heat for my role in watching over the doors and the gateways of my home when I raise my kids. There's a lot of things I wouldn't allow through those gates. 
There's a lot of things that I take heed over because I wouldn't allow them through the gates of my home. But you know what? I, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to answer to him as to my priestly role in that home. And I, I want, I want to be able to, there's so many things I'm not going to be able to stand there and puff my chest. I'm not going to puff my chest out for anything. Trust me. But I want to say, God, I erred on the side of vigilance. I would not allow this because I thought there was some danger in it for my kids. I would not allow this because I thought there was some danger in it for my wife. I would not allow this because God, you appointed me as watchman. You appointed me as caretaker for this home. And I would not allow this to come into my home. Men, that's our job. Our job is to stand firm and to watch for the enemy. When I think of this, I mean, I think of it's football season. So I think of, I think of a linebacker and I could pick a, I wouldn't pick a Bengals player, but I think of like, like a Mike Singletary. So let's go back like, like the, the vaunted, you know, uh, Chicago bears, 1980s defense, Mike Singletary was an animal. And if you, if you go watch those NFL films, his eyes, they're like bread plates in his helmet and he, he's just looking right. I mean, he's, he's just ready. He's he, and the, the play starts and you just see him shifting and you see his eyes. He was going to meet whatever that was. He was going to meet whatever was coming. He was not going to wait for it to come to him. He was so aggressive and just, just his vision was all over the place. And so instinctive, he would go and he would meet the, the block. He would meet the running back. He would meet the tight end. It didn't matter. He was not going to let the game come to him. Men were not designed to let the game come to us. We're not designed for reactionary. We're supposed to be actionary. We're supposed to be out there guarding our home, being vigilant against the, t- the attacks of the enemy that are coming for our kids and coming for our wives. So our abode is that we serve them. We pray for them. We, we lift them up before God. And then we watch for the enemy. We shamar, we watch over our home, over anything that's coming into our home that we think, and not just we think, take it to God. God, is this appropriate? God, is this, what is this going to do? Is this idea? Is this show? Is this music? You name it. Is this appropriate for my home? God, in your, in your light, God, give me conviction, Holy Spirit. Because it's my job as priest to keep this house pure, to keep this home pure. And listen, guys, when we shirk our responsibility as priest, Genesis chapter three, verses six and seven happen. Adam stands there and does nothing as paradise is lost. He stands there and watches his wife be deceived. And he just does nothing. Apathy kills biblical manhood. Apathy can ruin a home. It ruined paradise. Now, what's not stated here and it needs to be stated, I, I, I kind of go off script a little bit, I guess, is that, is that well, you know, why does Adam just stand there and do nothing? You know, it seems like, you know, this is curious. Is he just fascinated with the snake? Is it, you know, he doesn't do anything. He just ends up taking a bite too. And it's like, he's, his complete disregard for the whole situation. It doesn't make any sense. Well, let me say this. I would say that Adam being a man and I'm a man, but Adam was distracted. He had a beautiful woman there. 
And again, I'm going off script here, and I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say this. Adam was not so overcome by the beauty of his wife that he didn't pay any attention to the sinful behavior that was taking place or what he was allowing into paradise in this moment. But I can say that as a man, that nothing, nothing has destroyed biblical manhood more than sexual sin, pornography, and allowing this sinful behavior just to become a part of our lives in a, in a, a sex-crazed, praising and worshiping culture that it has pervaded what a man considers to be okay and normal as a man of God. I have ministered to and I have, I, have, I have dealt with and prayed for so many guys who have just struggled so much in this area. Godly men. Who, who are passionate about the Lord and love God and are doing the work of the priest, and in a moment they will take fruit that is offered to them. Knowing full well what it, what it means. And here's, here's the scary thing. As vigilant as you care to be in your shamar, in your keeping and watching over the home, as vigilant as, as, as you can be in being the, the caretaker of your home as a man and making sure that nothing gets in and making sure that your wife is, is protected, that your daughters, that your sons are protected, that you are praying for them. You're going before the Lord for them. You're doing everything that you can do, being vigilant as the guardian of the home. If you open your own heart up to sexual sin, the enemy has gone right through you into your home. You see, you, you were so busy protecting them and working on them and making sure that they were okay, but you opened the easiest door possible and allowed the enemy to cry, climb right in. And I've, heard, I've had guys say, Steve, I just have a problem with women, man. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Paul said, you, you are led into sin and don't I inwardly burn? It's the state of mankind. Job, Job did, said it the best. He's like, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully at a young woman. What Job is saying is he's saying, man up. And listen, if you, if you struggle in this area, if, I mean, this is something that, that is, is very real and poignant for you. I will pray for you. I will pray with you. I will stand with you. But the gate to close is yours. And you've got to make a covenant with yourself. I'm going to be vigilant in my home. I'm going to be vigilant in my, in my relationship with my wife. I'm going to be vigilant before the Lord. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to watch for the enemy. But I'm going to keep my own heart pure. I'm going to keep this thing pure because the last thing I want to be responsible for is the enemy coming through me to get to them. This is my responsibility. So, man, I say this not to say, gosh, man, Genesis really beats us up. But it's to say Genesis shows us how. See, this is an encouragement in that We don't have to guess how to be men. We don't have to wonder how we do this right. God says, this is how you do it. You become the priest in your home. You begin to pray for your women and for your children. You begin to to lift them up. You serve the home. You attend to it. You dress it. The home, you, you make 
paradise, whatever it can be for them. And you watch. You watch your own heart. And you watch for the enemy. You watch for the enemy that's trying to get in at every turn. 